So one of the, one of the cool things about the, the Bible, and in particular the Old Testament, when we look at the history of Israel, is we're getting this really like long view picture, right? One of the things that's easy to forget is there were real people who were actually living in the day-to-day stuff that was going on. And so while we might be encapsulating, you know, years and years, sometimes decades, even in one chapter, um, for the people who are there, I mean, this is a, they're living through this every day, sometimes for years, day by day, as the years are going by. And so it's important to remember that within this national picture that we're getting, or maybe looking at a few individuals in their relationship with the Lord, that there were individuals in that nation who had people who were at various places in their walk with the Lord. And maybe some of them experienced what we see in this big picture of the nation where they recommit to the Lord, and then a short time later, they're back where they were before. And then they recommit to the Lord, and then a short time later, they're, they're back there with the Lord. You may have experienced that in your own walk with Christ. You, you kind of you look at your history, and, and you kind of say, man, that sounds like me. You know, maybe it's not over, you know, centuries or whatever, but it, but it still sounds like me. I have these moments where I recommit things to the Lord, and, and then I, I kind of just, little by little, I fall back to where I was. And then I, I realize it, and I recommit, and little by little, I fall back to where I was. And this chapter here is, is so fascinating to me because we really kind of get this whole concept of that life of renewing, but then kind of just going back through the examination of the kingship of Joash. Chapter 11 of 2 Kings, it ended with the people of Judah and Joash, who, by the way, is only seven years old at the time. They rededicate themselves to their covenant with God, and they make a wonderful fresh start. The high priest Jehoiada, he, he does it right. He gives him the, the book of the law. He gives Joash his own copy. You're going to make your own copy, and you're going to grow in the Lord, and, and you're going to do this the right way. But at the same time that they make this fresh start, you have the years, the years of not walking with the Lord have taken their toll on everything around them. And so uh, through the years of idolatry and sin, the temple's a mess. And so the next step would be repairing their place of worship so they can draw near to the Lord again. And this became Joash's major task across his lengthy reign. And his rebuild, it gives us some good do's and don'ts for for when we're seeking to rebuild our relationship with the Lord so that we don't have that kind of a cycle with the Lord. Like if if we want to say, okay, what is the what is the normal normal plan of God for a believer. And the normal plan of God for a believer is to just to live by faith, right? So the idea is you're going from strength to strength, right? You're learning new things, you're responding to the Lord, and you're taking those steps of faith, and you're growing, right? It's not that we're, I got it all right, but the idea is we're making that progress. But then, you know, Paul in Romans 7, he talks about that issue of that circular life, not going from strength to strength, but you're just kind of always running in circles, And so, what we find here in this chapter is a good examination of what to do or not do so that we don't end up in the circle, but that we're living by faith and we're going from strength to strength. So, chapter 12, we begin in verse 1, and it says, in the seventh year of Jehu, Joash began to reign. In 40 years, he reigned in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Zebiah of Beersheba, And Jehoash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all his days wherein Jehoiada the priest instructed him. But the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places. So we have this summary of, it calls him Jehoash here. His his name was Joash, but the writer, to differentiate between another king named Joash from the north, he ends up calling him Jehoash, which is one way you could pronounce his name. So this King Jehoash, we get a summary of his very long, it says he reigned for 40 years in Jerusalem, and it mentions here that he did a really good job. He pleased the Lord, but then with a little caveat, right? It says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all those days wherein Jehoiada the priest instructed him. That word instructed, it's more than just like being an advisor. It implies a a measure of authority. And being only seven years old, Joash would not have been competent to run a nation. Jehoiada was more than just an advisor. His influence was crucial to 
Joash leading in a way that pleased the Lord. Now, 2 Chronicles 24 tells us that when Jehoiada, the high priest who was influencing this young man, when he died, Joash walked away from the Lord. We're not going to go into all that because we'll do that when we get to 2 Chronicles. The author, for whatever reason of this book, didn't think that recounting that part of Joash's life would serve his goal of teaching his theme to the exiles. But in verse 3, he does give us a hint as to why it might have happened, why Joash didn't stay walking with the Lord. It mentions that there was a compromise that he made. It says the high places were, he did not take away. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places. Now, I didn't talk much about verse 1 because, to be honest, there's not a whole lot there. It's just giving us a timing tag that he starts his reign in the seventh year of Jehu's reign in the north. Tells us who his mom is. That's important because he has a Jewish mom, which is why they were much more favorable to him reigning than Adaliah reigning, beside the fact that Adaliah was horrible. But it just moves from there, and it gets right into his reign, and it tells us about this compromise in verse 3 that the high places, he didn't take them away. Now, what were the high places? I remember when I would read the Bible as a young believer, and I'd, I'd always think of like some type of gargoyle idol or whatever sitting up on the hillside, people bowing down to it and sacrificing children to it or something. When you read the high places in the Bible, they actually don't have that type of a, an idea. Sometimes they are, but for the most part, they're actually just worship centers to the Lord, but they're not lawful. In other words, they're worship centers that the people set up that God told them, you're not supposed to set it up. Now, it might be thinking, okay, what's wrong with having like a, for lack of a better term, like a church or a worship site? What's wrong with making offerings or spending time in prayer at one of these sites if it's to the Lord? I mean, can I pray anywhere? Well, yeah, you can. But God told them that if you're going to bring offerings and incense and things like that, you're not going to do it that way. You're going to come to, to the temple, the place that I tell you where to come. Backsliding, of, you know, kind of straying away from the Lord, backsliding begins with compromises, usually small ones. I mean, sometimes they're large, but most of the time for us, they're small. But they, they don't happen just because. Compromises always come about because we, in some way, we decide to tweak God's commands or we ignore commands we believe aren't going to have a major impact on our relationship with God. So, for example, we would say, well, I clearly, you know, I'm not going to go steal groceries from the grocery store because, I mean, that's wrong but I'd have no problem taking extra pens home from work. And I know that's a, it's a silly example, but it communicates a point. Most of the time, if we do things that we would consider to be minor offenses, we compromise in these areas, and we do so thinking they don't really impact me in a negative way. And that's the mindset that can get us into trouble. I'm sure that many people in Judah were thinking, hey, at least we're not worshiping idols anymore, Right? The Lord will be pleased with this. I mean, why do, you know, why do we have to go all the way on this long trip to the temple? Certainly this is okay. This is good enough. But that thinking betrays a heart problem. Now, as this goes on over time, and then we little bit by little bit get farther and farther away from the Lord, and the compromises start becoming more wide-ranging, we get to a place where we, we realize, okay, things are bad. Like I, now, now I'm starting to think some things that before I would have never even thought of considering, but now I am. And so, you know, you come to church or, you know, you listen to a Bible study and like, oh, okay, all right, Lord, I got to get back, right? That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But whether when we come back, when we kind of make that renewed commitment to the Lord, whether we start moving forward again or we just begin the slow process of backsliding again, it depends on how we go about repairing that recommitted relationship to the Lord. Because if we're going to tolerate the same small compromises, we're just going to eventually end up in the same place. We will end up backsliding again. You see, the problem with the Judeans' mentality here is they were saying, I can worship God my own way as long as it's the Lord I'm worshiping. That mentality kept Judah from repairing their renewed relationship with the Lord, truly repairing it. And so this gives us our first principle for repairing if we want to rebuild our relationship with the Lord. I cannot keep doing the same things 
I was doing before I strayed from God. You can't. You can't do the same things and expect a different result. Something must change if I want a different result. I think probably one of my biggest, like, kind of counseling go-to is when someone's struggling, and I kind of share some things, I'm like, okay, let's talk about, like, Bible reading, devotion, church time, fellowship time, things like this, prayer time, and I'm getting pushback, and I'm getting pushback, and my kind of my final go-to is, so what do you expect to change if you don't make any changes? You're coming to me asking me for help, and I'm offering up all these things that the Bible says, but you have all these reasons or excuses of why that won't work. So what change do you think you need to make? What change are you willing to make? Because if the answer is nothing, I just want things to get better, nothing's going to change. You and I cannot keep doing the same things we were doing before we strayed from the Lord. Something must change. And so, you know, if you want, if you're in that place where you feel like I'm in that cycle a lot, or, or you're kind of made, maybe you made a fresh commitment to the Lord recently and you're thinking, I want to do this right. Well, the way to do it right is to ask the Lord to show you where you've been trying to follow Him on your own terms. Where you, some area of your life where you've been saying, I know you say this, God, but I can worship you and I don't have to do that. I can, I can follow you, but I don't have to do that. Ask the Lord what that is. And then when He points those things out, leave them behind. I've had many crossroads in my life as a, as a Christian. You have those kind of moments where the Lord's kind of like, all right, dude, We've been going round and round about this for a while. And, and he's, every time God comes out with the wrestling suit on, the best thing to do is just get in the pin position. Right? When Jay, when, I mean, that's the funny thing about Jacob, because he's just like me, right? He's just like you, some of us, most of us. The Lord comes out in the wrestling suit, and we're like, it's on. And it's like, why? And you're like, oh, no, God, I can do this. I can do this. He's like, you can't do this. You know, I can't do this. I can do this. And we fight with him long enough, and finally, if we do that, he finally just kind of you know, boop. <laughs> you can't do this. I can't do this now, God. What am I going to do? Let's start from scratch. Surrender. I've had those moments where in the crossroads and God's like, we're, we're going to keep going round and round until you, you deal with this. And, and you're kind of in that place where you're mentally aware, Right? Like in the past, it's kind of like, you know, but you got so many excuses that you don't really get it. But then you get those moments where the Lord corners you and you're like, okay, but I don't want to do that. There's, it's an important crossroads, right? I've never, ever been disappointed when I laid something down, no matter how hard I fought to hold on to it. Never. But I've had a few moments when that crossroads hit and I said, no, I'm, I'm going to keep doing this, Lord. And man, that's a hard road to hard road to go down. So ask him to show you where you've been trying to follow him on your terms. And then when he points it out, leave those things behind. Verse 4, we get now into the more nitty-gritty of his reign. It says, and Jehoash said to the priests, all the money of the dedicated things that is brought into the house of the Lord, even the money of everyone that passes the account, the money that every man is set at, and all the money that comes into any man's heart to bring into the house of the Lord. Those three things, he says, let the priest take it to them, every man of his acquaintance, and let them repair the breaches of the house, wheresoever any breach shall be found. So Jehoash, he brings all the priests before him, and he says, I've got a plan to repair the temple. And he institutes this fundraiser. Israel didn't have like coinage like we do, like we mint coin and we say, this coin is worth this much. What they would do is, is they would just have precious metals, and they would be worth whatever they weighed. Now, they tried to make, like, for example, silver. The silver shekel was the common kind of thing they would use to barter. And they would try to make it in similar weight, but you still weighed it because they were all a little different. So that's how they kind of used money, for lack of a, a better term. Their value was in their weight. And so his plan is, he says here, listen... Of all the things, uh, dedicated things that are brought into the house of the Lord. Dedicated means just something given to the Lord. Uh, and the, the temple, he's, he, he's recognized here that you guys have three forms of silver donations. He says, first off, he says, you have this money that, of everyone that passes the account. And we're not sure exactly what this is, but it probably refers to the census. In the book of Numbers, it describes that when you reach the age of 20, 
God's law required that you were to donate a half shekel for temple usage. So uh, he says, listen, that normally comes into the temple funds. When it comes in, you're going to set it apart for repairs. He says, secondly, you get this silver money that comes in, the silver shekel that comes in every, every, that every man, it says, is set at. Um, these, this refers to silver, uh, silver that was donated from your personal vows to the Lord. Now, this was not a requirement in the law. It was voluntary uh, when you wanted to make a promise to God. So, when you decided to make this vow to the Lord, you would go down to the temple, and then you would have a, a meeting with the priest. You set him an appointment with the priest, and you sit down, and you say, what do you want to do? And he said, this is the commitment I want to make to the Lord. And then based on your age, your income level, the priest would then tell you how much your donation needed to be. Uh, you can read all about it in Leviticus 27. It's really long. I didn't want to go over the whole thing tonight. Um, but it gives the details of these voluntary vows that you want to make to the Lord. He says, when people come down for that, you set it aside for the repairs. Thirdly, he says, and then when it comes into any man's heart to bring something into the house, all the money that comes into any man's heart to bring it into the house of the Lord. So these would just be free will donations. That was just someone was being generous and said, we want to give money to the Lord's house to, to help fix it. Um, he says, this money that would normally be used for upkeep, supplies, or to provide for the needs of the priests and the Levites' families, he says, this is now going to all go towards the temple repairs. Now, you might be saying, well, how are they going to get paid? Well, the priests and Levites' main source of income uh, was from the animal and the grain offerings, so they, they were fine. Those donations would still go towards them. But every, all these other things that would normally, they'd do whatever they felt was necessary, it's all going to go straight to the repair work. And then he says in verse 5, to kind of increase giving, he says, you're going to go out. He says in verse 5, let the priest take it to them. Second uh, Chronicles 24, 5 explains it a little better. But Joash tells him to go out to collect this money instead of waiting for the people to bring it. So you're going to go out, he says, and you're going to take it to yourselves. Every man of his acquaintance, in other words, from those you know. Um, the way that the, it was assigned by the Lord was that the, the Levites and the, and the priests were spread out all over Israel. That's why you don't see land for the tribe of Levi because they were spread out throughout Israel, and they would have these Levitical cities all throughout the nation. And the idea was is that these guys would then go from this, their kind of home base in an area, and they would go out to the region around them and teach the Scriptures to the people, teach them God's law. So the idea is you've all got assignments. You've all got areas where you teach on a regular basis. You know the people there. You're not going to be cold calling anybody. Just go out to the people you know, tell them what we're doing, and then ask them to pray. And, and if the Lord puts it on their heart, bring in the finances. So that's the plan. It's going to be this fundraiser. They're going to make people aware, and they're going to bring it in. I, I remember as a young pastor, um, I, I still hate fundraisers, but um, like from a church, I just, it, they don't, church almost never does it right. So, because yeah, it always sounds greedy and also like, like God can't, pr anyway, I, I digress. As a young pastor, I would, I would have never even thought of doing anything. Like even like the kids coming in with little brownies, I'd be like, no, get out of here. You're not going to make God's house a house of merchandise. And then, you know, you start reading the scriptures more. And you start to, Dennis is laughing because I did that here. No, I didn't do that to your daughter. No. <laughs> I started reading. I thought, you know, there are some fundraisers in the scripture. There, are, it, there is some precedent for that. Uh, we're not doing any here, but there is some precedent for that. But the idea being is, hey, let people be aware. Make people aware of what we're doing and then bring in the money for this big repair job that we're going to do. And the whole function is, is to repair the breaches, the, the chinks and the chips and the cracks and the damaged areas of God's house, wherever they may be. He says, I want you to, to take care of all of it. Let them repair the breaches of the house wherever any breach shall be found. God's house had been plundered by Adaliah's sons. It had been ignored by God's people for about 20 years. It needed serious attention to be able to be used in the way God intended it, commanded it to be used. And so, you guys are going to go out. You're going to actively raise the funds for that. And again, Joash's goal is clear, any of these breaches. He has a full repair in mind, not a partial repair. We're going to fix this place up and make it just like when Solomon had it. Which brings us to our second principle if we're going to rebuild our relationship with the Lord. 
We're God's temple now, right? And, and when we neglect or we damage our relationship with God through our backslidings, we can't decide on a halfway repair. We can't decide on a halfway repair. Our goal must be to deal with all the cracks in our walk with God. Again, I would say that there are times when someone who comes to me and they genuinely like, I'm far from the Lord, I I wanna make a fresh commitment. I'm like, praise the Lord, okay. So what do I do from here? Okay, well, tell me about what your life's been like. Tell me about some of the things that have been taking you away from the Lord. And you know, and we'll start talking about it. I'm like, okay, so you know you need to work on this here. Yeah, I know, okay. And you know this needs to change, yeah. But inevitably, there's always one thing where it's like, okay, and you know this, and they're like, yeah, but like, does the Bible really say that? <laughs> because it's hard. It's, it's a change. It's a big change. Someone, sometimes it might be as simple as, as coming to church on Sundays instead of doing sleeping in. And then sometimes it's complex, like you've been in a seven-year relationship with someone that's not healthy for you. I say complex because you look at it and you go, but that's seven years of my life. I'm just supposed to walk away from that? If it's taking you away from Jesus, yes. Yes. And then, you know, they'll start going through, yeah, but, you know, he's talked about going to church again, or, you know, she's she's talked about how, yeah, we need to make some changes. And I'm like, I understand that, but, but part of where you are where you are is because of that. That needs to change. And so, again, it can't be a halfway repair. We need, to, we need to set out. It's not that you have to fix everything at once. That's not my point. But you need to set out to do a complete repair. If God makes you aware of cracks or chinks or damage, you need to look at that and go, that can't stay there. That needs to change. Well, sadly, decades later, the priests have not made much progress. Look at verse 6. We make a time skip now. We're moving like 30 years forward or 20 years forward. It says, but it was so that in the third and 20th year of King Jehoash, so he's 30 years old now, the priests had not repaired the breaches of the house. Now, that would make this year like Jehoash, the year of his 30th birthday. I don't know if he had like set in his heart, like, I'm hoping on my 30th birthday, everything's, you know, everything's set, like we've made progress. I don't know. I do think it's interesting that it only took 20 years to do all the damage, but in 23 years, it still hadn't all been repaired. 23 years should have been plenty of time to finish the repair, which means the priest hadn't done the job Joash gave to them. So he brings them in, and he questions them. Verse 7, then King Joash called for Jehoiada the priest and the other priests and said unto them, why do you not repair the breaches of the house? Now, therefore, do not receive more money of your acquaintances, but deliver it for the breaches of the house. He says to them, the phrase, why do you not repair, um, it's in a, uh, Hebrew doesn't have tenses, it has something called stems. And it's in a stem that expresses the bringing about of a state. Like, this is partially your fault that it's not repaired yet. Why, why is this, why are you at fault for this? Why does this state still exist? Now, Joash isn't saying they didn't do anything, but either they hadn't raised enough money to complete the job, or they had the money, but the repair, it doesn't sound like they had the money, but either way, the repair in 23 years was not moving forward at a pace that Joash thought was right. Whatever answer they give, he's not happy with it because he comes up with a new plan. Look at verse 8. It says, and the I'm sorry, it says in verse 7 at the end, now therefore you're not going to go out, the fundraiser's over. You're not going to go out and receive any more money of your acquaintance, uh, but you're going to, whatever you've collected, you're going to deliver it for the breaches of the house. Whatever you've collected is going to all go forward to fixing the house. Verse 8, and so the priests consented to receive no more money from the people, neither to repair the breaches of the Lord's house. So this lets me know that apparently they had decided to do the work themselves. Anybody here ever done like an at-home job yourself and then like your spouse is looking at you going like, we're, we're calling someone right now, right? You know, the, I, I'm not a fixer-upper guy. I'm the exact opposite. I'm a breaker, okay? Like I'm, 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 a, I'm a open it up and it's worse off after I'm done with it, I would say 50% of the time. Every once in a while, you know, I get it right. Generally speaking, though, I'll work on it for a while, and then, you know, Bev will kind of, you know, say, hey, you know, I I know a guy. You know, or hey, so-and-so knows a guy. You know, I'm like, I got this, son, I got this. (laughs) I personally think that's what happened here. I think they 
the funds weren't coming in very well, and then they were trying to do it themselves, and they really weren't skilled to do it. And as a result, it just wasn't happening. Because it says they'd stopped collecting money, and they stopped working on the temple. Instead, verse 9, it says, but Jehoiada the priest, it says, he took a chest and he bored a hole in it, in the lid of it, and set it beside the altar on the right side as one comes into the house of the Lord. And the priest that watched the door put therein all the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. So instead he goes with, with a different plan. He decides, he doesn't say you guys are being shady with the money. You know, he's not saying you're mismanaging the money. Uh, again, he's just saying the job's not getting done. We're going to do something else. And so Jehoiada, he, he, he and the priests agree. And the new plan is they wouldn't touch the fund at all. They wouldn't do any of the repairs. Anytime people would bring money, they'd still let the people know we need money for repairs. But it would all go into a box. And when the box got full, it was going to be taken to an outside construction team that the king had appointed to do the repairs. Look at verse 10. And it was so when they saw that there was much money in the chest that the king's scribe and the high priest would come up and they would put it up in bags and tell the money that was found in the house of the Lord. And then they would give the money, it says, um, being counted, being told into the hands of them that did the work, that had the oversight of the house of the Lord. And they laid it out to the carpenters and the builders that wrought upon the house of the Lord, and to masons and to hewers of stone, and to buy timber and hewed stone to repair the breaches of the house of the Lord. And for all that was laid out for the house uh, to repair it. So basically, they had the box, and when they would kind of shake it and go, the box is full, they would have this scribe, this secretary in charge of, uh, be a guy in charge of written documentation. He would come down, and him and the high priest would count it out together. Uh, Jehoiada is someone Josiah trusts. He's the guy who's got the most investment in the temple, so he's there for the counting, and then this royal official is there for the counting. Um, I think this is a good, like, leadership lesson here. Leadership with no delegation is tyranny, but delegating so much away that the job doesn't get done well is an absence of leadership. Now, it's a, that's a delicate balance to walk sometimes, Right? Because sometimes you're like, you know, there are people who are like, yeah, but if I give it to this person, it won't get done right. But then the other side of that is be like, well, I'll let other people do these things, and then no one's leading, right? It is hard to kind of walk that middle line where you're not being tyrannical, but at the same time, you know, you're, you're not abdicating your role to lead people. You know, my personal style is, is I like to be the cheerleader, you know? Like my, my personal style of working with people is I, I, I like to find, what's your idea? How do I help? You know, and then I'll, I'll be the one to kind of support you and encourage you, whatever. So a lot of times, you know, when stuff comes up and it's not working out, I'm kind of like, well, let's just give it a little longer, <laughs> you know? And if you keep doing that over and over again, what happens? Well, the job just doesn't get done. So you do have to learn to, if you're in leadership, and if you're in any type of leadership in a work environment or anything like that or any other type of environment, so you know that that's what you have to do. You can't just grab it by the reins and be like, nobody can do this but me, you know? Because then you're limited in how much you can do and then everyone hates you, which is not a good way to lead. I heard someone say, good leadership is when you make people do something they didn't want to do and make them think it was their idea. The idea is you, you get them to buy in. That's what leadership is. And that's what jo, uh, Joash is doing here. He's, he's getting more people involved, and let's do this right. So these guys, they would come down, and they would uh, take the money. They, the word told there means they would count it up, and then they'd put it tied up in these bags, and then it would be given to these outside craftsmen who would end up doing the work. Like I said, prior to this time, the, the repairs were all in-house. But now it was going to bring in those who had the specific expertise in the various construction elements required. These guys had an expertise in overseeing big projects, managing the finances for such. They would have contacts with the skills necessary to get the job done efficiently. Which brings us to our third principle when we're trying to rebuild our relationship with the Lord. Trying to go it alone doesn't get the job done. It just doesn't. Just a word of advice. One of the biggest lies when you're struggling with what I would label like secret sin, things like, you know, 
pornography or lust or like mismanaging finances, things like that. Secret sin, one of the biggest mistakes we make with secret sin is we try to keep it a secret. We try to think, okay, no, no, next time, this is how I handle it and it'll be better. But the problem when it's a secret and nobody knows about it is it's very easy in the moment to not stand by the conviction you had when you weren't in the moment. In contrast, when it's in the light and other people are involved, it's a lot more difficult to just motor on through. Because you think to yourself, I have a meeting in two days with so-and-so, and they're going to ask me how I'm doing. It's, what is it, the, a threefold quarter is not easily broken? Two are better than one? You know, one might fall, you know, but two is better than one, and a threefold quarter is not easily broken. So the idea is, is that if you're going to try to, you know, you, you got away from the Lord because you kind of got on your own, and then you're going to say, well, all right, I'm back, and I want to rebuild my relationship with God. If you're going to try to do it alone again, you're going to end up in the same spot, most likely. Because all of us need other people in our lives who can give us advice and accountability. We all do. Jehoiada is a godly man. He needed accountability. The priests were good men. They needed accountability. They needed help. They had areas where they didn't have expertise. You know, some of us, we go into things like marriage, and we're like, all right, all right, all right, I'm going to do this, and then it doesn't work, you know, and you're having problems, and then, you know, your wife is coming to you and saying, we should get counseling, and you're like, no, 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 we don't need, we're not like that, right? We're, we're not like that. We don't, we're not that we need counseling marriage yet. And then you, you keep trying, and what keeps happening, it just little bit by little bit, keeps deteriorating. We need accountability. You've, you've never done, everything we do in life, we've usually never done it before, right? You know? I, I was hanging out with a, a, couple, a couple that was grandparents the other day, and I'm going to be a new, I'm a new grandpa. I'm going to be a grandpa soon. I said, said, how do you be a good grandpa? I want to be a good one. I've never been a grandpa before, Right? I've been a dad. That's different than a grandpa, right? So how do, you, how do you be a good grandpa? I'm in Proverbs right now in my devotion time, and, you know, you read through it, and all over it's like, don't be a dummy head. Take advice, you know? Receive correction, you know, right? I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that's what it says, right? Right? I mean, that's what it says, you know? You know? Like, I looked through the window of my house, and I saw, I love the King James, I saw a naive man. He's a dummy head, is what he's saying. <laughs> I saw this really stupid guy, you know, and he's just blundering down the street, heading toward the house of the prostitute, thinking everything's going to be fine. And, and, and that's the challenge we face in life, is that so many of the things that we experience, we've never done it before. We say, well, we can do this, you know, I've, I've got this experience, or I just kind of know what I want, or whatever, and yeah, maybe sometimes it works, but especially with really important things like your marriage and parenting and your walk with Jesus, serving Him, sharing your faith, not so much. It's pretty important to make sure we get it right, right? So it's worth bringing people in who can give you advice and accountability. Well, this works out better. Look at verse 13. Benches, howbeit, there were not made for the house of the Lord bowls of silver, snuffers, basins, trumpets, any vessels of gold or vessels of silver from the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. But they gave that to the workmen, and they repaired with it the house of the Lord. So it, it makes a, a unique comment here. It says these guys were working on stuff, but they didn't work on this. They didn't work on this part. Instead, all the money went towards the other things. Now, what's interesting about that, that is this here, is that it mentions that these guys took care of this. See, see I think the, the, the problem is, is sometimes, right, so you're the priest here. You're going before the king, and you're like, this is not going to go well. Like, we've, we've had 23 years to get this right, and it's not working. And then the priest just, you know, the king lays the smack on it. He's like, y'all fired. I love you. I know you're trying hard, but you're fired. So we're going to go with outside, outside guys, craftsmen, whatever. And then the priest, it would be easy for him to be like, yeah, whatever, you know, I'm just going to go, you know, slit this cow's throat, you know, and take care of this and whatever, and you guys do that, and just not be involved at all. But instead, these guys, as the priest as a whole, they come to the craftsman, they say, hey, we know this is your responsibility, and we're going to bring all the money to you, but with our own funds, we want to take care of this. 
We want to be a, we have some part, and this is something we can do. Isn't that cool? Like, that's the type of people you love to work with, right? You come to them, and you've got some critique to bring. You're like, hey, this isn't working out the way it needs to work out. We've got to make a change, so we're going to go with this. And then the person is like, okay, all right, well, I can do this, though, and I'll give my all to that. And you're like, yeah, go for it, you know? And then everything gets done. That's the heart we're supposed to have. I like these guys, you know? They, their heart isn't to make it about them. They just want to figure out what the Lord wants them to do, and then when He tells them, I want you to do this, they go for that. They cooperated with the craftsmen in other ways too. Look at verse 15. It says, moreover, they did not reckon with the men into whose hand they delivered the money to bestowed on the workmen, for they dealt faithfully. It says here that they didn't keep accounting records so that the priests weren't sticking their nose in all the details of it. They weren't like looking over the shoulders and going, you know, well, how much are you paying so-and-so to do that? They, they didn't get involved in any of that stuff. They didn't keep accounting records because these guys, they were faith, they conducted themselves faithfully. It means they were, they were honest, they, they, they were trustworthy. Again, the priest could have gotten bitter at the king when he told him, you're not getting the job done, someone else can do it better, and I'm going to have them do it instead. I think one of the hardest things for me to do as a pastor, really, I would even say this worked in my, when I was in management outside the church. One of the hardest things to do when I was a leader, especially in ministry, is, is to tell someone, you're not really blessing God's people like someone else could. That's a hard thing to say. Like, I know you're working hard, I know you're trying, but either the gifting's not there or the call's not there. And, but for whatever reason, what you're doing isn't blessing God's people. And instead, I think someone else could be a blessing to God's people. It's hard to tell someone, you don't really have this gift. Someone else would be better for this, and you would be better for something else. That's like the nuclear option when you're a pastor. It's like, so, so what, what kind of conversation are you going to have today? I'm going to tell somebody that they really don't have the gift they think they have. Oh, okay, so you're going to split the church. Yep, that's the plan. Because, <laughs> man, people don't respond well to that. People don't respond well. The person tends to explode, and then they take as many other people with them into their explosion. But we should be able to be honest with one another about these things. We should not be those who assert ourselves through pride or through selfishness. You know, I've been so blessed by folks sometimes when they've come to me before I even say something and they say, listen, I'm not sure I'm the best person for this. I think God's raising up this person. Makes my job a lot easier. <laughs> but man, if we all stay humble and realize, hey, it's okay, I wanted to do this, but maybe it's not working out the right way with me doing it. Maybe, maybe God's got someone else. You know, there are many days I sit in my office and I think to myself, Lord, I mean, if you got someone else to do this better, um, tell me what to do. I'll do something else. When the Lord first called me to be a pastor, I said, I don't want to be a pastor. I'd kind of like stacking chairs and sweeping floors. You know, I would, we were at, I think, men's breakfast the other day, and I was explaining, you know, when I was uh, in high school, I, I always hated doing public speaking hated it to the point where I would like pretend to be sick on the day I was supposed to give a speech. High schooler. I just really didn't like being in front of people. Still generally don't like to be in front of I've gotten used to this over the years, and I feel really comfortable sharing this. But I generally don't like being in front of people. Even today, when you're a pastor or you have a gift of leadership, I'm not saying I do, but you're all here, so maybe I do. But People look to you, and there'll be times I'll be out places, and everybody look at me, and I'm like, I'm just here for the ride. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to lead anything right now. I don't gravitate towards that. And yet the Lord, you know, called me to this. So I'm constantly in, in my mindset is, Lord, if there's somebody else better, then let's do that. I'll, I'll find a way to hold up their arms. I'm not bragging because I got plenty of other struggles, but that is the way we should be thinking in the sense that, Lord, I don't want to hold tightly to anything as mine. You know, I, when I worked in the restaurant business and then later on working in the school, I worked with large staffs of people. And man, you had, I, I've shared this story before, but you've got kings and queens of every little area of a restaurant. Like you've got the queen of the salad station and don't you mess with her salad station. She doesn't reign over much, but that is her kingdom. 
And if you mess with it, you're going to pay for it. And I think it's because we all want to have that sense of belonging, some sense of like my life has meaning and importance, value. I bring something to the table. This is what I do. And again, that's, that's a problem because our identity is in Christ, right? Our validation comes from knowing Him and being in Him. But as a culture, we put a lot of stock into who we are. I mean, how many of you, if you're young now or remember when you were young and maybe had your first job or had first real kind of career opportunity and there's a lot of pressure on you because your parents, the other ones like helped you pay for college or whatever, and you're thinking to yourself, I can't mess this up because, you know, why? I'll be a failure. We put a lot of value in what we do. I don't think it's wrong to consider what you do to be valuable, but I don't think it's biblical for us to find our worth in what we do. And so, these guys could have caused trouble. They could have been poking their noses in the details. They could have been trying to oversee the financial transactions and say, oh, no, actually, I know somebody else could do a better job at this. Instead, they looked at these guys honestly and they said, you know what? These guys are skilled, they're reliable, they're trustworthy, they're honest. And you know what? They are doing the job better than we did. And so they didn't try to insert themselves into the situation at all. And look at verse 16. It says, the Lord took care of all their needs. It says, the trespass money and the sin money was not brought into the house of the Lord. It was the priests. Joash didn't come to them and say, you know what? You guys aren't getting paid until the job's done. I've known bosses who've been like that. <laughs> he didn't say that. He didn't take from the offerings that supplied their income that took care of their needs and their family's needs. No, they did their job, and the craftsmen did their job, and everything got taken care of. Which brings us to our fourth principle when we're trying to rebuild our relationship with the Lord. Trying to control everything is often why our relationship with the Lord ends up in a bad spot. Rebuilding my relationship with God requires me to relinquish the illusion of control. Now, I realize we all have different personalities. Some of us are happy to not have control. Some of us are very uncomfortable with being out of control. I consider myself to be someone who's kind of in the middle. I remember the first time that Bev kind of challenged me, and she's like, well, she's like, you need to relinquish the illusion of control in this situation. And I'm like, what? I don't, I don't need to be in control. And she's like, okay, well then, let's, let's just leave this behind and give it to the Lord. Oh, well, you know, but, but if we do that, then this will be wrong. And she's like, do you see? And that was one of those wrestling matches where the Lord's kind of like, good morning, Will. We're going to talk about this. And I'm like, I don't have a problem. <laughs> you know? And the Lord's like, all right, let me get the spandex on. Let's go a few rounds. Ding, ding. If we're going to rebuild our relationship with God, it requires us to relinquish the illusion of control. Instead, we need to trust the Lord's leadership by letting Him have His way with us and with the things around us. Well, the work gets done, the temple gets repaired, and it's all good now. But as we said earlier, Joash walked away from the Lord. And so it says then, verse 17, so after all this work on the temple is done, it says, then Haziel, the king of Syria, went up and he fought against Gath, and he captured it, took it, and then Haziel set his face to go up to Jerusalem. After the high priest Jehoiada died, Joash and many of the tribal leaders, they backslide, and Second Chronicles 24 tells us they get involved in idolatry. And God, it tells us, Second Chronicles 24 tells us that because of their idolatry, God allowed this invasion to take place. It was, part, it was how God was disciplining them, trying to get their attention. And so the first part comes is they invade and they capture this city of Gath. The Gath was a former Philistine royal city along the west coast of Judah. That's far away from Syria. Now, we already know from earlier, I think it was chapter... 10, the end of chapter 10 of 2 Kings, that when Jehu became king and he did not take down those golden calf statues in Bethel and in Dan, that God told him, he said, well, 
you're maintaining the sin of Jeroboam. You're, you've done what doing evil in my eyes. And so God disciplined the northern kingdom by allowing Haziel to invade and conquer the entire Transjordan region of the northern kingdom. That's a huge section of land. They didn't have anything on the other side of Jordan anymore. That entire area came under Syrian control. Well, now we see here that Haziel didn't stop there. He invades across the Jordan River and beyond Israel and into Judean territory, captures the city of Gath, and because he was so successful, he says, I'm going for Jerusalem. Now, 2 Chronicles tells us that Joash went out to fight against Haziel with a much larger army than the Syrians had, and they got whooped because he hadn't repented. He himself is badly wounded in the fighting. And so now facing the prospects of a siege and eventual defeat, instead of repent, Joash decides to pay Haziel to go away. Look at verse 18. And Joash, king of Judah, he took all the hallowed things that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Hezekiah, his father, so his great-granddad, his granddad, and his dad, that they had, and the things he had dedicated, uh, uh, his own hallowed things, all the gold that was found in the treasures of the house of the Lord in the king's house. He took all those things that his grandfather, his father, uh, his, his great-grandfather, his grandfather, his father, and he dedicated to the Lord, donated to the temple, and he took, he plundered the temple, robbed the temple of it, and he paid it to Hazel to make him go away and sent it to Hazel, king of Syria, and he went away. He left Jerusalem. It was common practice for the kings to have special things crafted and then donated to the temple. Um, usually they were for aesthetic purposes. Solomon, if you remember, he donated like a thousand golden shields to the temple, right? And you'd go in and, you know, and there'd be these, sometimes in the high holy days, you know, there'd be soldiers there and they'd wear these, you know, ornamental shields and stuff and it would just look beautiful. In fact, his son, after Pharaoh plundered those from the temple, he, made, he replaced those with silver shields. So it was common for the kings to have things crafted, and then they would give them to the temple as a sign of their, hey, we want it to be beautiful. We love what's going on here. We want to make our own donation and be generous. Personally, it's surprising to me that Jehoram and Ahaziah, who are two wicked kings, that they actually donated expensive things to the temple. That goes to show you that being a big giver doesn't make you a true believer. But I read this and I think, didn't we just start in verse 4 when he says all the money of the things that are dedicated is going to go to the repair, and now he plunders the temple himself at the end of his reign. Why would Joash do this after spending all of his life repairing and rebeautifying the temple? I mean, from a human perspective, I guess I get his logic. He's wounded, they just got beat, and he's thinking if we fight them, they're just going to take it all anyway. Why not give them enough to make them go away and then we could save some of the city and some of the temple? It's a good worldly logic. But the truth is, things that are dedicated to the Lord belong to the Lord. And any plan, any plan of how you're going to tackle a conflict in your life or a challenge in your life or a temptation in your life, any plan that involves doing less for God or backtracking on something you already committed to God isn't going to please the Lord, nor will it work. Which brings us to our fifth principle when we're trying to rebuild our relationship with the Lord. One reason that our relationship with the Lord can get into a bad spot is because we develop a habit of leaning on our own understanding. I can't rebuild my relationship with this renewed relationship with the Lord by continuing that kind of decision-making process. If you say, well, I'm, I'm making choices based on how I see it, you know? I'm going to lean on my own understanding. I need to never see less commitment to God as an option to solve my problems, especially when God is disciplining me. You see, instead of trying to fix God's discipline with my solutions, I need to receive God's discipline and learn from it. We read that in our Scripture reading in Hebrews whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, right? That's what, the, whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. Well, Joash's robbery of the temple combined with 
Judah's military defeats convinced some of his officials that he needed to be removed from power. So his reign does not end well. Look at verse 19. The rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And his servants arose, and they made a conspiracy, and they slew Joash in the house Milo, which goes down to Scylla. Uh, Milo, David constructed this anti-siege section along the walls of Jerusalem, and uh, apparently there was this house there, like a palace there, a royal residence along these extensive defensive lines uh, outside the city. And so these two decide they're going to spring their rebellion and uh, are there. And so they, Second Chronicles tells us they killed Joash when he's recovering from his wounds in bed in this residence on the, the defense system. For Jehozakar, the son of Shimea, and Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servants smote him and he died. And they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Amaziah, his son, reigned in his stead. And sadly, that's all we have from Joash. A horrible ending to such a good start. But the reason he ends poorly, even though he starts so well, is because while he seems to be very religious, it doesn't seem like he really worked on his own personal relationship with the Lord, maybe even never developed one. And, you know, as the writer is recounting the story, the reason he doesn't talk that much about everything else Joash did I think the reason he doesn't do that is because this is the thing he wants to communicate, because this is the danger that the exiles face. You know, are, are they going to be religious, or do they intend to rebuild their relationship with God? And if they're genuine in their desire to rebuild their relationship with God, are they willing to do it the right way? So just to kind of go over one last time before we close, these five principles to rebuilding your relationship with God, do's and don'ts. Don't keep doing the same things. Do ask the Lord to show you where you've been following Him on your own terms. Number two, don't make a half commitment. Do give your absolute surrender to the Lord. Number three, don't try to do it alone, but do make yourself accountable to others. Number four, don't try to maintain control. Instead, do trust the Lord. And number five, don't respond to God's discipline by taking matters into your own hands. Instead, do learn from God's discipline and act accordingly. Let's all stand. Lord, I remember the first time I read this and I was so bummed. But Lord, you've included it here. You've put it on this writer's heart to send this to the exiles, and now it's, it's here for us. So Lord, help us to learn the lessons that Joash didn't learn, what not to do and what to do. Lord, you know everything going on in all of our hearts tonight, so you know where we're at. You know maybe some of us have been in that kind of circle. I, I, Lord, you know I've been there. And maybe even... Some of us were hearing you call out to us and say, I want to take you from strength to strength. I don't want you to go around in that circle anymore. Or maybe, Lord, there's this one thing in our lives that we kind of keep just, keeps pulling us down. So, Lord, whatever it is you spoke to our hearts tonight is, as your people are, are kind of saying to you, Lord, I want, to, I want to deal with this the right way. I want to rebuild this aspect of my relationship with you correctly. Lord, would you fill them with your Holy Spirit and would you enable them to follow through with what they're committing to you right now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.